John chapter 20, John chapter 20, rather John chapter 19, and then we're going to go into uh, chapter number 20. And uh, I'm excited to preach this message here this morning, to open God's Word and just see the truths in here. I'm fired up about it, maybe even as fired up as I was last week, but I've got 17 pages of notes here. And so we are definitely going to be carrying this message into this evening service like we did uh, last week with uh, Sunday morning. But um, we're going to cover here some wonders of the resurrection. It's good to be in the house of the Lord uh, this morning on Resurrection Sunday. Every Sunday is a Resurrection Sunday, by the way. And we're going to see some of the truths, uh, the principles behind that in uh, this uh, message. But uh, we're going to begin in the 19th chapter of John, and we're going to read in verse number 38. Uh, we'll read all the way down, uh, well, to the end of the chapter, verse number 42. We'll pray, and uh, we'll get right into the message here this morning. The Bible says in verse number 38, And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might, might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him leave. He came, therefore, and took the body of Jesus, and there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night, brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about an hundred-pound weight. Then they took the body of Jesus and wound it with linen, uh, clothes with the spices, as the manner of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new sepulcher, meaning it hadn't been used, wherein was never man yet laid. And the Bible defines itself there. Therefore laid they Jesus, therefore because of the Jews' preparation for the sepulcher was nigh at hand. Let's pray. Father, I need you. God, I pray you'd empty me of sin and self and God, I acknowledge my need and utter dependence upon you. I pray you'd fill me with thy spirit. Help me to be a spirit-filled vessel. God, help me to be a, a uh, as a result of your resurrection, I've got the comforter living in me as those that have received you as well do. And Lord, I pray you'd make spirit-filled listeners, recipients of your word, that we may receive the truths and uh, the, uh, the, uh, the victorious words that you have for us here this morning. As a result of that resurrection, that you, um, that you powerfully provided for us. God, may we be challenged, may we be encouraged, and would you have your will and way in our hearts today, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I want to speak to you this morning on the wonders of the resurrection. And some of the wonders that we're going to be talking about may be subtle, and uh, some of them you may have seen before, and, and, uh, but some of them you might not have noticed firsthand. But as we go through a brief exposition here of the last portion of, uh, of a John chapter 19 and then into the first part of John chapter 20, uh, we see a monumental, um, a monumental um, experience, a monumental uh, something that happened, a, a monumental thing here that that our Christianity hinges upon. All religions of this world can be summed up in two categories. You either have to work and you either have to keep doing and doing and doing and doing something in order to merit or try to earn your way to heaven. Well, Christianity said all the work was done at the cross of Calvary. Jesus did all the work that needed to be done when he gave his life. He took your sin upon his shoulders. He took your sin, my sin upon his self, and he willingly went to the cross, and he bore our sins, and he died in our places. And so Christianity says it is finished. It is done. The price has been paid. Mormonism says you got to do this. Catholicism says you got to do this. 
uh, Hinduism says you got to do this and add this and this and this and this. And you can fill in the blank. All other religion says do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. But Christianity, uh, true Christianity, biblical Christianity says Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. And I don't owe it to him in order to work for it. I owe it to him because it's the least that I can do. I want to live for him as a result of what he did for me. We talked about the golden candlestick this morning in uh, our junior, uh, junior age Sunday school class. And that candlestick, when we get saved, there's a candlestick that is lit within our hearts. And the Spirit of God takes residence and he wants us to be witnesses for him. We're going to see some of these, uh, the wonders of this resurrection as we get into this story here uh, this morning. And there are beautiful wonders that are popping out everywhere in this story, as we notice. And it is an amazing thing. Jesus said this, that the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. But when it came time for him to die, one of the richest men Joseph of Arimathea, we read about him here. He said this, I have a tomb and I, I want the Lord to be buried in my tomb. I want to provide this tomb for him. And we read here that he was a disciple of Christ secretly for fear of the Jews. And Joseph of Arimathea came to a Pilate and he requested of uh, the body of Jesus. And then there's another very famous man of that era that came as well at that time. And if you remember a man named Nicodemus, Nicodemus, if you will, he, he was one that came to Jesus by night and uh, Jesus preached to him and uh, he ended up telling him of uh, this fact of being born again. Now, everybody is born one time physically. You, everybody in here has got a physical birth date, but I don't know, and it's not common that everybody has a spiritual birth date. And in order to get to heaven, Jesus taught this man Nicodemus that he needed to be born again. He needed to be born spiritually. Nicodemus says, what am I supposed to do? Crawl back into my mother's womb and, and be born again? And Jesus said, marvel not that I say unto thee, you must be born again. You need to be born of the water. That is a physical birth. When all of us were born, typically what would happen is our mother's water would break. And then shortly after that comes the child. You were born. I was born. And that is what's called the physical birth that Jesus is referring to. But until somebody comes to acknowledge their, their sin condition and their need for Jesus, and God, I can't do anything to earn or merit myself to get to heaven, I fully and wholly trust you as my Savior, and I receive your payment to my sinful account. I receive your blood to my sinful soul. And that is the day that somebody gets born into the family of God. They get born again into God's family. That's when somebody becomes one of God's children. Now, let me say this. According to the Bible, if you've not been saved... You're not one of God's children. You're one of his creation. But oh, the, the blessing of being one of his children is so much better than being a creation. You know, dogs and cats and all of the other animals of this world are God's creation. They don't get the privilege of, of uh, getting to be born into God's family. He saved it for the human race. He saved it for the people is a mankind that he loved to be able to choose him, receive him as Savior. And the Bible says here that Nicodemus, uh, well, Nicodemus was instructed earlier, earlier on in uh, John chapter 3 that he needed to get born again. And we don't see much about, we don't see anything from what I know, from what I understand about Nicodemus until it comes now that Jesus was crucified. And Nicodemus comes, and he is one that wanted to take the body of Jesus. I believe the Bible teaches that he became a believer. He had trusted Christ as his personal Savior, just like uh, Joseph of Arimathea had become a disciple of Christ. From John chapter 3 to John chapter 19, uh, Nicodemus had become a full-fledged believer. Now, mind you, they might have been a little bit uh, secretive because they were rulers of the Jews, both of them. 
uh, but they both came to Jesus with great sacrificial gifts, a hundred pounds of uh, spices, the Bible says, a very costly amount, and they wanted Jesus' body, they wanted to prepare his body for a burial, and so uh, actually when it came time for Jesus to be pulled off the cross and the nails were pulled out of his hands and out of his feet, I believe that Mary was there, the Bible teaches as well, but uh, we see that the main people that were helping pull the body of Jesus down from off of the cross was Nicodemus and a man named Joseph of Arimathea. And it was Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus that prepared his body for the burial. You know, I've heard this, and I'm saving to have the opportunity to get to go to Israel someday. We want to take the trip. That's one of our goals. And I mentioned we've got, we've been recently talking about using the funds for something else lately, but uh, we've got some money saved to be able to take a trip to Israel. But I've heard from different testimonies as you go into the tomb where Jesus lay, you can see that uh, it had been modified for Jesus. In other words, Jesus was, uh, I think uh, from what I've read, um, commentaries, commentators, commentator people uh, have taught that uh, Jesus was, was, uh, was a tall, taller man. He was a uh, uh, so, well, I guess somewhat average size. I've, I've read about five foot ten or so, and and I know we're all tallers from what I understand nowadays. But uh, what I read was you can tell that that uh, that tomb had been modified in order to fit Jesus because Jesus was supposedly taller than Joseph and then also taller than Nicodemus. And from what I've heard is that there are chisel marks that uh, where where the head was to be laid. Uh, of uh, the body of Joseph, who that tomb was for. Originally, they, uh, when they were going to put Jesus in there, they had to chisel out another section to extend it there so that the Savior would be properly laid in that tomb. See that Jesus was placed there. We see that Jesus rose up from the grave even after Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea went through that long preparation process of taking care of his body and laying him in that tomb. Uh, tomb. And that's where we pick up here in John chapter number 20. I want you to notice with me this morning some of these wonders of this resurrection. I want you to notice, turn to John chapter 20 there uh, with me, if you will. John 20. We're going to get right into these wonders here, and certainly this isn't exhaustive. These are just a few of the wonders of this resurrection. I want you to notice from me, first of all, number one, it is a wonderful day. That resurrection Sunday when Jesus rose from the grave, it was an absolutely wonderful day that transformed uh, the worship of uh, Christianity. It transformed the worship of all people. It was a wonderful day because their Savior had been risen, giving them victory over sin and death in the grave and giving us the promise of a home in heaven someday. If He hadn't have been risen, we don't have promise of a home in heaven. And folks, our God was laid in that tomb, and three days and three nights later, He came up from the grave. He arose. And because of that, we have hope. And because of that, we're not just miserably down here on this earth plugging along, but we can have victorious lives. And as they had taken him and they had, uh, he had taken our stripes and they platted a crown of thorns upon his head, signifying king over sin and king over death and king over hell. What do kings get? They get crowns platted on their, on, their, on their heads. And that crown of thorns was a represent, representation of a sin-cursed world. And when those sinners put that crown of thorns on him, they were crowning him king, rightfully, unbeknownst to them. They thought they were doing it in mockery, and yes, they, yes, they were. But God had another meaning behind that. And God allowed that crown of thorns to be on their heads. But look at verse number uh, one here. I'm getting ahead of my, I'm getting, I'm getting sidetracked here. And I want to, uh, 
I want to share all of this here. Look at verse number one. It says this. The first day of the week. What is the first day of the week, class? Sunday. Sunday. And uh, probably, unless you'd been taught that in church, you might think that Monday begins the first day of the week, right? Anybody ever thought that before? I'll be honest. I thought the first day of the week was Monday before I learned at church, all right? But uh, the first day of the week is actually Sunday. And so it says the first day of the week came Mary Magdalene early when it was yet dark unto the sepulcher. This, the first day of the week. So we see here this woman, Mary, Mary Magdalene, came to find Jesus on the morning of the first day of the week, and she found Jesus, but she didn't find him dead. She found him alive on the first day of the week. And let me just show you something here, too, that uh, let's turn over a little bit to uh, uh, verse number 19. Verse number 19, chapter 20. The Bible says this, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. I don't get it any further there. But uh, he said, Stood in the midst, peace be unto you. Now, maybe it's just the pastor of me here uh, this morning that wants to make this point out, but, but uh, I find it extremely helpful and supportive that uh, it's obvious that Jesus began to meet with his disciples on the morning of the first day of the week and on the evening of the first day of the week. And by the way, uh, the evening, according to the Jewish tradition, starts at 6 p.m. And so have you ever seen that before? Now, I knew that they had met in the upper room, and it was, a, it was a, uh, in a, 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 an evening, Sunday evening, uh, prior to that. But, uh, but uh, here they are meeting, and the Bible says it was on the first day of the week. The first day of the week, this woman named Mary, she ran and she went to the tomb and she found that Jesus had been risen. I don't get ahead of myself here. And so we want to meet Jesus here uh, this morning, and we want to meet Jesus in the evening. And we see that Mary came when it was very early. And then we see that the disciples were meeting on a Sunday evening at 6 uh, evening, 6 p.m., and so uh, we have a 6 p.m. service. Some of us maybe didn't realize maybe how very scriptural a Sunday evening service is. Isn't that just awesome? And I know, I know there's principle there that uh, most independent Baptists have done, and I've been a part of churches that didn't have a Sunday evening service. Uh, we had a Sunday afternoon service. We had a fellowship meal, and then immediately after uh, the meal, we, uh, we'd have another uh, service, maybe 1.30, 2 o'clock. That's how we had our services in Hawaii. And, uh, and but, uh, but anyway, I see this here. And it's a, it's a wonderful day. It's a wonderful day because of the resurrection. It's a wonderful day. Specifically, it was Sunday, the first day of the week. And uh, so we see here, well, why, do we, why do we meet? Because we see this example here of these disciples finding Jesus, the resurrected Savior, on the first day of the week, on Sunday morning, both in the morning and then in the evening. And things transformed on that first day. And yes, we see that the Lord, uh, he, uh, he says to keep the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. And because we're commemorating on the Sabbath day, the act of God creating the heavens and the earth. And uh, that was a great act. Yes, it was. Absolutely. Uh, the creation of the universe, the creation of the world. And uh, then on the seventh day, he rested. But so much greater uh, than, uh, well, uh, greater than creation is the resurrection. And so we come to Sunday. We are honoring this as a day of rest. We are honoring Christ and commemorating the fact that when we come to Jesus, we've entered into His rest. Aren't you thankful for that rest that only Christ can give? 
Now we reverence this day in a very special way. In the same way that the ancient uh, Jews would uh, reverence the Sabbath day. So we have a wonderful new day. We have a wonderful day, Sunday, the resurrection of Jesus. And again, by the way, every Sunday is a celebration of the resurrection of our Savior. Secondly, notice with me here in our passage, we see the wonderful transformation, the wonderful transformation. And there's a whole lot of wonderful transformations in here, but we're going to notice one in particular. In verse number one, it says, the first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early when it was yet dark unto the sepulcher and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. Mary Magdalene, out of whom the Lord had cast seven demons, and here she is. A lot of people have surmised and and uh, maybe drawn a conclusion that she was a, a harlot woman. They've said that, and and I don't know how factual that is, and and uh, but I do know the Bible says that she had some demons cast out of her. And Jesus cast those seven, de seven demons. And there are a whole lot of things that, a uh, whole lot of different influences that, can, that are demonic. And did you know that pride can be an avenue by which demonic influence can, uh, can, uh, can affect us? The Bible says, uh, pride cometh before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It could be a number of different sins that make way for the avenue of demonic influence into our lives. And this woman, she was formerly possessed of demons, but she is now devotion possessed of Jesus. And that's what a transformation from Jesus will do to you. Jesus will transform you. Those things that you used to be in bondage to, those sins that used to be a slave to, Jesus wants to free you from all that garbage. Jesus wants to give you a home in heaven. Jesus wants to give you a relationship with him. Jesus wants to be your friend that sticketh closer than a brother and help you with all the miserable woes of this world and give you victory. But it's his resurrection that allows you to have that victory in him. We talked about the Passover lamb last week. And the Passover lamb, the, the picture of that Passover lamb, is a picture of our Passover lamb, Jesus. And as those Israelites were obedient to take the blood, and uh, they were to strike it upon the posts of the doors of their homes, that death angel would pass over their homes as he saw that blood, and he would not kill the firstborn of all that were in that land. And when we get saved, the blood of the Passover lamb, Jesus, is on the doorposts of our hearts. And God will not allow that death angel to affect us. That death angel will pass over us when the time comes for our physical bodies to die. But God doesn't just want to save us so that, uh, so that only we can go to heaven someday. And he doesn't just save us and leave us down here on this earth to be miserable and to trudge down through this earth here uh, without him. No, he wants us to be victorious. He wants to give us, he's given us victory. But we try to work things out on our own and and we try to be stubborn and prideful, and, and, uh, and we don't consider the things of God like we should. And we trudge it out unnecessarily and uh, often in, in failure. But there are a lot of different sins that invite demonic activity. It could be not only sexual immorality, but it could be pride. It, it could have been uh, anger. It could have been hatred. It could have been a uh, 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 sins that when she was little that opened up the demonic influence of her life. But the point that we want to see here is that there's a wonderful transformation and God can make that wonderful transformation in your life if he hasn't already done so. It's important to realize here as we see this wonderful transformation, I want you to notice something. God has somewhat elevated in the 20th chapter here of John. He somewhat elevated the place of a woman. If you consider this, um, I think living in this Western world that we live in, the United States of America, 
we've been we've been enlightened somewhat, and and uh, because of Christianity, because of the teaching of Jesus, we forget how much more appreciated the female is in our society than before Jesus came. Consider this: in any society where Jesus is not Lord, the woman is not treated with care and with love and affection. Also, a woman's testimony was not even believed because she was so looked down upon, oftentimes like a second-class citizen. But we see here the first testimony of the risen Savior, our risen Savior, was by who? Whom? I don't know. Was by a woman. And so let me read you here something from a scholar of the Word of God. It says this. Uh, His name is William Craig. He said this, It should be noted that females were not even allowed to serve as legal witnesses. He said their testimony was regarded so worthless that they could not even testify in a court of law if a man committed a crime and was observed in the very act by, by some women. He could not be convicted on the basis of their testimony. Since their testimony was regarded as so worthless that it was not even admitted into court. Furthermore, Craig, uh, he uh, says this, he notes that women occupied a low rung on the Jewish social ladder. Compared to men, women were second class citizens. They were, uh, he says this, uh, consider these Jewish texts. Craig said, I'm quoting from the Jewish text here. He said, Sooner let the words of the law be burnt than delivered to women. And again, happiest is he whose children are male, but unhappy is he whose children are female. Pretty pretty oppressive, isn't it, ladies? And I hope you don't think you have it bad in the United States here. Um, Prior to the coming of Christ, you see, I, you think things have changed quite a bit. Uh, in, a, in, a, in communist China, when abortion is committed very quickly, very easily, or uh, it's determined that you're going to have a boy or a girl, China now is wanting more females because so many people killed their girl babies there. And they, they have an oversurplus of boys. Prior to the coming of Christ, women were so denigrated by society that one of the Jewish prayers dated from that era declared this, I thank thee that I'm not a woman. And all the men said, I thank thee I'm not a woman. I I hold to that there, but but, um, it's been said by other scholars that one reason they know that Jesus did indeed rise from the grave is because of the truthfulness and the transparency, transparency of saying that it was a woman firsthand who discovered it. Because if it were the making, if somebody was making up this story, they wouldn't have had the woman be the chief testimony or the first testimony of our risen Savior. And the first testimony we see in his death and in his burial and in his resurrection, he could have had Peter uh, be the first testimony. He could have had John be the first testimony of his resurrection. But he chose a woman, a woman named Mary of Magdalene, and uh, she was cast out. She had demons cast out of her, and she had a transformed life. And God used her after that transformation. She was a servant of his. She was cast out of the, those demons were cast out of her, and she was in her right mind. And she wholeheartedly followed Jesus and made a difference for him. We see the wonderful day, a Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. We see the wonderful transformation that took place here in the life of this woman. And then uh, thirdly, we see a wonderful enthusiasm, a wonderful enthusiasm. Look at verse number one. When it was yet dark, now this is funny here. When it was yet dark, Mary ran unto the sepulcher and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. Uh, Verse number two, then she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. And you'll notice something here. You'll notice this wording, this wording that says the disciple whom Jesus loved. Uh, Through the book of John, why? Because... God used John to write the book of John, and, 
And uh, I love it. I love the term of endearment that this man, John, gave to himself. God allowed John to have this term of endearment toward him. How many of you would like to be considered the, the disciple who loved God or that God loved? I would. And he says this. Why does he have it in here? Because first of all, it's true, it's God's word, but because John wrote the gospel of John and he loved to refer to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. Look at verse number two. Notice next here. It says, they, uh, he says, they have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher and we know not where uh, they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth and that other disciple and came to the, to the sepulcher. So they ran both together, and the other disciple did outrun Peter and came first to the sepulcher. And so, continuing the story here, Mary reports back to Peter and John, and they hear of this uh, resurrection, and, and uh, this, is, this is just kind of cute, if you, if you ask me. Everybody's excited in here, and everybody's enthused because of Mary's testimony, and uh, Mary's enthused. She's excited, obviously, and now Peter and John are enthused, and it says this about John, who he titled himself the disciple that God loved, and then he says this about himself, and uh, it says, and the other disciple did outrun Peter. Now, why is that important? Why is it important for John to say, I'm the disciple, and I outran Peter to go and see the resurrected Savior. Isn't that neat? Isn't that weird, cute, neat, whatever you want to call it? I just find it pretty cool here. He's enthused. He's so enthused that he decided, man, I'm not going to let Peter beat me. I'm going to run. He may be stronger. He may be bigger. He may be meaner. He may have been the first guy to cut off uh, one of the guards' ears uh, when they came after the Savior. But I ran to experience the resurrection of Jesus first. I outran that guy. <laughs> he said, I outran Peter. I came to the sepulcher first. But tell me that this doesn't depict Peter's personality. The Bible says this, and stooping, and he's stooping down, and he's looking, and he saw the linen clothes lying, yet he went not in. That's talking about John, actually, but uh, that was uh, uh, John, and then comes Simon Peter following him, and went into the sepulcher, and we see the linen clothes lie. And so John ran, and he outran Peter, and he got to the outside of the sepulcher, and he's peeping in, he's looking in at the stuff there, and then Peter finally gets there, and he just barges right in. And the next time we see Peter, he's like, what's going on? What's going on? And, and then it says in verse number six, then cometh Simon Peter following him and went into the sepulcher. So we've got, a bunch, we got, we got a bunch of enthusiastic people coming to check out uh, the tomb and uh, experiencing uh, the risen Savior. Peter was slower than John. What a powerful, wonderful truth. Number next, and we're done here. We'll wrap it up. Next we see, I've got a whole bunch of for the alliteration's sake, it is a one, there are wonderful messages. There are wonderful messages. And I'll bring to your attention one of these wonderful messages. There are several of them, and we're going to cut it short, though, as uh, we conclude the message on the wonders of the resurrection. But in this story here, we see linen clothes. And these linen clothes are lying there. These linen clothes are the linen clothes that Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea had taken the body of Jesus and they prepared it and wrapped it in the linen clothes and in that, uh, what do you call it? Uh, 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 what do you call them? Linen clothes. Uh, <laughs> so they prepared the body and they had him in there. Now in verse number seven, I want you to read it here and the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. And so Peter and John have gone in there. Mary had gone in there. They'd seen the resurrected. They'd seen that he was not there. The linen clothes were laying on the tomb there. And the Bible talks about a napkin, 
a napkin that was there, and it was, let's read the word of God, and the napkin that was about his head, so you can imagine a napkin on the head of our Savior initially, it says the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes. So it's no longer there with the linen clothes any longer, but wrapped together and in a place by itself. I bring to your attention here a wonderful message, and it is a folded napkin. And there's an illustration here with a custom of table manners. And uh, when you're at a table, the table was on the ground when in Middle Eastern uh, culture there, and, and uh, people would eat sitting on the ground with that small table oftentimes, or maybe not even have a table is my understanding. But the table was on the ground. And uh, if you were finished with your meal, you'd take the napkin. How many do this today if you're in a restaurant? I've, it's custom. I was taught. I don't know who taught me it. But I was taught, you know, you're sitting down, you take your napkin, you, you unravel it from uh, all of the silverware that's there, put it on the table, and then typically I'll put my napkin on my knee like that. How many people do that? How many were taught that? Who taught you that? I don't know. Um, but I've been doing it for a long time. I have no idea. Where, I can't remember where I heard it from. But then uh, typically I'd wipe my, uh, you know, make sure that I'm, uh, I've wiped myself clean. And uh, then I would take that napkin if I'm finished with my meal. And I don't typically go like this all, you know, crazy. But I'll take it and I'll put it on the table there. And that would tell, you know, that, that's because I'm done. I'm finished. Well, here's something peculiar. And this isn't just happenstance, okay? The Word of God is pure. The Word of God is perfect. God gives this story in here for a reason, I believe, probably, possibly, because of this Middle Eastern culture. And we see in this passage here that this napkin was put in there neatly folded. And so these Middle Eastern people, if you were coming back, you would, to your table, if you were finished, you'd throw the napkin on the table there. But if you were coming back, you would uh, take the napkin and you would typically fold it up there. Maybe you need to use the restroom, maybe had another appointment or something of that nature. And you'd fold that napkin up carefully. And that would signify that you were coming back. When Jesus rose up from the grave... He came out of those grave clothes, kind of like a, a butterfly out of a co cocoon, if you will, except they weren't molested, they weren't touched. They were, those uh, grave clothes were, were just like an empty body was in there, flat on that grave, and that napkin was carefully folded over in its own place, the Bible says, and put back there, but upon the empty place where he lay, and now as his clothes, as he's clothed in light and in the robes of heaven's glory, Jesus, that is, he takes that remaining earthly napkin that was about his face, and he neatly folds it, and he puts it in a place to tell all of us who have trusted him as Savior, yes, he came, and yes, he died on that cross, and yes, he rose from the grave, but he ascended to heaven, and the Bible says that right Right now, Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God the Father, and He's waiting, and it's just a matter of time before He comes back because He's folded that napkin. He carefully folded that napkin, and He laid it on the tombstone there, and He's coming back. He's coming back in what's called uh, the, uh, the rapture of the saints, and there will be a trumpet that is sounded by the angel Gabriel, and when that trumpet is sounded, the Bible says the dead in Christ shall rise first. Our bodies that have been dead will rise first, but the Bible does say this, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Those of us that are saved, uh, those that have been saved, they're already uh, in, in Jesus, with Jesus in heaven. But Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. And then when that rapture takes place, we're going to go up to heaven and we're going to have what's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
And after that wedding supper, that marriage supper of the Lamb, we're going to mount up on white horses and we're going to come back with our Lord and Savior and we're going to come back to this earth and we're going to rule and reign for a thousand years with Jesus Christ and He's going to conquer Satan and his demons and his, uh, and his cohorts and all of the wicked vices that are here on this earth. And then it's going to be eternity in heaven with our Savior. But all that to say, coming back. He's coming back. So there's a wonderful, subtle message here. God doesn't just put anything in the Word of God by coincidence. Look at verse number 8. Then went in also that other disciple which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed. You ever seen that? I thought John was a believer already. He was calling himself the disciple that Jesus loved. But I, but I wonder, why did it say that he believed? Could it be that he hadn't believed yet? Could it be that he... He did follow Jesus. He did see him perform miracles. He did see him do great things and wonders, and, and he did sincerely love him, but he had never truly received him. I'll tell you an occasion of another person that got saved, that believed uh, during this time as well. It is the brother of Jesus. His name is James. James, the half-brother of Jesus, grew up with him. I can imagine growing up with Jesus, the Messiah, and not believing that he's the Messiah. I mean, you know, you you uh, you getting into trouble, you know, with your brother and stuff, and and uh, learning that he never did anything wrong. You could never blame anything on Jesus. He never did one thing wrong, right? How could James not believe? Well, uh, the Bible says that James didn't believe until he witnessed the resurrection of his brother. I wonder if that was the case with this guy named John, disciple whom God loved. Then went in also that other disciple which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed. Finally, John got enough courage uh, which came first to the sepulcher, and he reminds us again, I still outran him. I still got here first. Uh, before Peter did, he might be braver than me, but I'm faster than him. And I saw him, and I believed. I wonder this morning, have you believed? Have you believed? You say, yeah, I, I know him. I, I heard about his death, burial, and resurrection. I celebrate Easter every year. I celebrate Christmas, the birth of my Savior. I, I, but have you received him? Have you received the payment to your account? It wasn't until the resurrection, at least, that James believed. I wonder if that was the case with John as well. He said, saw, and believed. You know, the Bible says this, blessed are those that, that uh, hear and uh, have not seen. None of us have, have seen the resurrected Savior. None of us went, are able to go back in time and, and see this happen. But those, the Bible says, if you've trusted Christ as Savior, you are more blessed than those that have seen the resurrected Savior. Greater faith hath you. And there's a blessing that comes with that. So this morning we see several wonders of the resurrection. But the bottom line is this, Jesus came, he was buried, three days and three nights later, he rose from the grave, and he, he conquered death and hell victoriously, and it's because of him that we can have that blood and apply it to our sinful accounts. Have you received the blood of Christ? Father, I thank you for the word of God. I thank you for the precious blood that you shed. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Lord, I thank you for the day that I came to understand my need 
for your blood applied to my account. Lord, I thank you that there was a man that shared the gospel with me, the death, burial, and resurrection, and he encouraged me to call on you and ask, ask you to be my Savior. Never forget that day. My spiritual birthday was February 27, 1986. I put my faith and trust in you. I got born into your family. Thank you for that. I thank you. You didn't just want to save me in order to, uh, to, to, to take me to heaven someday. Yes, what a, what a wonderful and very important thing to have happen. God, you want to give me victory. You want to have a relationship with me here on this earth. Thank you for the promise of your spirit that lives in me as a result of that second birth. Lord, this morning, I thank you for your word. I thank you for these wonders here that we've seen this morning. God, I pray that you'd work amongst us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd have your will and way in the hearts of your people here this morning. Lord, I pray that if there is a person or two or three that has never received you as their personal Savior, that has never believed and received you as their personal Savior, I pray today would be that day and they'd get it settled. The Bible says this, As many as received him, to them gave he power to be called the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. With heads bowed and eyes closed this morning and nobody looking around, we are going to have the piano play here in just one moment, but I want to ask a few questions just in the privacy of your seat there. How many here would say, Pastor Sam, God has spoken in my heart about the wonders of the resurrection, the wonders of his resurrection, and I'm so thankful for his resurrection and the victory that it gives. Would you slip your hand up if God has spoken to you, the Holy Spirit of God has spoken to you about his resurrection? Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Slip your hand up as a testimony to the Lord. Maybe you want to raise your hand and say, God, thank you that you resurrected. Thank you for what you went through on my account, but especially that resurrection. Amen, amen. Is there anybody here to say, Pastor Sam, God spoke to my heart, and, and how many could honestly say you've got a scriptural reason that you know that when you die, that heaven will be your home. Would you slip your hand up if that's your testimony this morning? You've got a scriptural reason. You know that heaven will be your home. Amen. Many hands up, many hands up. Not every hand is up, and I respect that. I respect that. But I want to encourage you before I ask this next question. You can know. You can be certain that heaven will be your home someday when you die. And it's not about a religion. It's not about, uh, it's not about uh, being good. It's not about doing certain works. And if that was the case, none of us would get to go to heaven because we all fall short of God's glory. It's only through by receiving Jesus as our personal Savior that we can have the assurance of a home in heaven when we die. If you're here this morning and you say you're not certain, you're not certain, you'd be honest. You're not certain that if you died, but you'd like to know, I'd like to pray for you. I'd like to pray for you. If you're here this morning and you're uncertain about your eternal destination, would you slip your hand up so that I can pray for you? Slip it up right now. Slip it up right now. See that hand? Amen. And put your hand down. Anybody else? Slip your hand up so that I can pray for you. Are you certain about your eternal destination? Would you slip your hand up if you'd like to, me to pray for you? I'd like to pray for you. All right. Let me say this. It's not my prayer that will save you. My prayer can't save anybody. I wish it could. But it's only through the blood, this blood, the blood of Christ, there needs to be a time in everybody's life where we understand our sin condition, our need for the Savior, and we need to personally receive the Savior to our sinful accounts. 
And when I did that, the Bible says this in Romans uh, chapter, uh, uh, Romans uh, 10, 13, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Romans 10, 9 and 10, for with the heart man believeth unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And so we need to call on the Lord. We need to receive him to our accounts. When I did that, I was, a, I was younger. I was a young boy. And there was a man that explained the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Man didn't have to convince me that I was a sinner. I already knew that. But he did convince me that I had a great Savior I needed to receive. And I prayed that evening, and I asked Jesus to be my personal Savior. And I'd like to help lead in a prayer this morning. If you're uncertain and you'd like to call on the Lord, I'd like to help lead you in a prayer of receiving Christ as your Savior. There aren't any special words that will save you, but it is the faith and belief in your heart that you are a sinner in need of the Savior and Christ paid your sins. If you'd like to be saved, you've never been saved. You'd like to call on the Lord and get born into his family, receive him as personal Savior. Would you say something to this effect? You may say it quietly. You may say it out loud. But confess to the Lord, say, Dear Jesus, I believe I'm a sinner. Say, Dear Jesus, I believe that uh, you died on the cross to pay for my sins. And right now, Lord, the best way that I know how, I'm not trusting any religion. I'm not trusting any works. I'm not trusting baptismal waters. I'm not trusting anything aside from Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone as my personal Savior. Right now, Lord, I receive you as my Lord and Savior. God, help me to live for you. Thank you for what you did for me. In Jesus' name. I just want to share with you that verse again in Romans, Romans 10. With your heads bowed and eyes closed, the Bible says this, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shall believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And then... For whosoever, verse number 13, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you insert your name in place of that word whosoever, you may do that, make it applicable. For if Sam shall call upon the name of the Lord, Sam shall be saved. And I did that. I called on the name of the Lord and I told you the time. I know when I die that heaven will be my home. With heads bowed and eyes closed, let's all stand this morning. Heads bowed and eyes closed. And if you're here,